Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. Now here, co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. We're here today with one of our own, Talbot Old Testament Professor Marcus Zender, who has written a wonderful new book entitled The Bible and Immigration. Uh, it's, a, it's a comprehensive, sort of all, all you need on the subject in one place, and we really appreciate Marcus coming on with us. Uh, Marcus has had a distinguished uh, academic career throughout Europe. Uh, he's taught at schools in Belgium, Germany, and Norway. Uh, he speaks multiple languages. He's as close to a Renaissance man as anybody I know personally. <laughs> uh, and then he's been on the Talbot faculty here for the last several years. So we've been delighted to have his expertise in Old Testament with us, uh, and particularly on this subject of immigration. So Marcus, welcome. Really great to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here. Now, Marcus, you, you have sort of made your, made your reputation as an Old Testament scholar. Uh, you've taught and written lots of technical stuff on lots of different parts of the Old Testament uh, that, that have to do with Hebrew and the language. But what is it about the subject of immigration that has captured your interest for so long? It's a combination of scholarly and personal reasons. Uh, personal first, um, I watched the onset of mass immigration into my home country, Switzerland, when it really began, and then watched it continue and saw the the consequences of it and saw the responses given by church and theology and found there is something to add. So that's where the scholarly side comes in, because uh, as scholars, we should make sure to uh, deal with topics that are relevant. And um, personally, I also think it's important to show the relevance of the Old Testament in this question. You have a unique perspective to this. You've lived most of your life in Europe, but also in the United States for a while, too. What's the difference in how this subject is discussed and approached in Europe as opposed to in the United States? The question would uh, need to be nuanced in a way because it depends on um, whom you're talking about, what kind of circles. So are you talking about the broad societal discussion uh, in the U.S. as compared to Europe or are you talking about the discussion within academia, or are you talking about the discussion within uh, the churches? Mm. So we need to make these distinctions. Now, broadly, uh, covering probably all of these different groups, we can see that um, the fact that immigration has a different face here in the US as compared to Europe makes necessarily the discussion going in different directions. And um, another distinction is that just broadly, the church is still comparatively stronger in the US than it is in Europe. Mm. So in the European discussion, the Bible is not really at the center anymore in mm. any way, whereas here it still is in, in just not as it was, of course, 20 years ago, but still much more than in Europe. Mm. And as far as the 
um, question of the immigration population is concerned, um, the main difference is obvious. You have in Europe a majority of immigrants that come from the Muslim world, uh, also from non-Muslim countries in in Africa, and then there's some inter-European migration from the Balkans especially. Whereas here, the population is broadly uh, Latin American and East Asian as the major uh, groups. So that makes a huge difference. Mm. Marcus, uh, one of the, I think, most helpful things in the book it comes in the, be the beginning parts of this where you outline a number of pitfalls that people can fa fall into, uh, particularly with respect to the way the Bible is used in this conversation. Uh, and I've, I think what I discovered in, re in reading through this, and I've, I've known this from talking to you too, that those, some, you know, those pitfalls are encountered both for people who are on the political left side of, of the immigration issue, but also some pitfalls for those who are on the political right side of, of the issue. So what, what, are, what are some of those pitfalls that people who want to study the Bible on immigration should be particularly careful about? I make a distinction between pitfalls that are related especially to the use or directly to the use of the Bible and those that are related to broader issues that are not related to the Bible. And uh, perhaps I begin with the latter category. Um, so there are many presuppositions that inform the views of those who look at immigration issues that can't be taken for granted, like immigration per se is good or it's bad. It's uncontrollable. It uh, necessarily leads to enhancement of diversity in a positive sense. These are all presuppositions that need to be questions. So we need to look at the specific data and then a posteriori and not beforehand look at uh, how immigration really works. Uh, one of the most important presuppositions that are, in my view, wrong is that it's about welcoming or shutting out so that you have the good people who are open and the bad people who uh, are closed. In reality, it's about how to manage immigration. So it's not the good versus the mm. bad, but it's more a question of how can we wisely deal with these questions. And that would be a help to overcome the split between right and left. Um, and then in these questions, right and left doesn't really work very well in many instances in the traditional sense, because it's rather globalist versus um, sovereignists, or those who propose that the nation state has still a role to play. So that's more important than right and left, and actually it crosses the dividing lines between these two traditional camps. And then when it comes to, um, to questions about the Bible, um, here I would say one of the problems is that there is a reduction when it comes to the use of the Bible. So there are only certain passages that are selected 
And these passages are taken out of their literary and historical context. And then these passages are transferred one to one to the current situation. And all of this doesn't work. That's a great segue in the next question. How should we use the Bible when we think about immigration? Is it that we can use it as Christians, even though this is the pluralistic society? Should we not use it? Or should, like you indicated, should we use it, but just make sure we don't pick and choose particular verses that support our political perspective? Uh, for us Christians, uh, there should be no question that we use the Bible for each and every question that we face. Uh, that's why we have it. Um, so there, uh, that's clear, but the question for Christian is how to use it uh, in an appropriate way. Hmm. And that means, just as you mentioned, not doing the selection and all of it. So looking at the whole uh, message. Uh, because we have been given the Bible as a canonical whole. So that's why we need to use it as such. Um, now, for the broader societal discussion, uh, we can't impose anything on the broader discussion. We can just try to show where there is wisdom that might appeal also to those who, who do not believe in the Bible with regard to these questions. Marcus, let me be a little more, a little more specific on the use of the Bible. How, how would you suggest that we use the Bible in, in particular in forming public policy decisions about immigration? Because that's, I think that's a, a little trickier matter. Yes. Uh, so I would agree with those who say that we can't use the Bible to prescribe specific policies. So on the lowest level, um, that doesn't work because the Bible is addressed to a specific situation, uh, which is different from the one we have today. So that wouldn't work. What will very well work, however, is to get um, general guidelines and principles that may reorient us in how we deal with these questions. And uh, especially here, I would propose that we look at possibilities to reorient this, the dealing with immigration from the state bureaucracy frame to the frame of personal responsibility and personal relationship. And another uh, very important point is to... Um, give weight to the fact that every human is created as an image bearer of God. Hmm. Uh, that will be something we also need to keep in mind and bring into the public discussion. Now, this very importantly means every human being, so not just the immigrant, but also members of the receiving societies. In your recent book on the Bible and immigration, you talk about how the Hebrew term underlying the English words for migrants or immigrants carries a nuance that's often lost in these discussions and that we can't just lump all immigrants into the same category. So what are some of the different words that are used in Hebrew that describe different types of migrants? 
Yeah, that's a very important point. Uh, that uh, is one of the pitfalls to lump all migrants in the same category, though they are different. So here the Bible actually helps us to make distinctions. Mm. Um, the main distinction we get on the individual level in the Bible is the distinction between what is translated mostly as a sojourner mm. Um, as opposed to what is translated normally as a foreigner. The Hebrew terms respectively are ger and nochi. So these are the main categories. There are some subcategories and other types of uh, categories, but these are the two most important ones. Now, how is this important? It is important uh, in the sense that the sojourner and the foreigner are treated differently in the legal collections. So the sojourner is given a lot of support and protection. Um, there is even a command to love the sojourner. And all of this is not true for the nohri, the foreigner. So the question then is, um, how are they different uh, historically in ancient Israel? The sojourner would be someone who comes not in search for a better life, but just to survive and is ready to integrate fully into the congregation of Israel. Not necessarily on the religious level from the beginning, but on all other levels and on the religious level to some degree. There are requirements that he has to observe as well, though he is not yet an Israelite. Whereas the other category, the Nochi, this will be typically uh, like a merchant from, let's say, Phoenicia or some other neighboring country. And he comes to Israel to, to do business and not to stay there permanently and not to integrate himself. And that's all okay. Uh, but because they are different, they are treated differently. And uh, that certainly should be uh, an incentive for us to think uh, about differences in, current, in the current immigrant population. Why do people come? What's their... What are their needs and what are their goals in coming? And then we will quickly see that they, they are different people. So that means we need to treat them differently. The problem we face today is that there is this overarching cultural um, prescription that we must not treat people differently. But life doesn't work like this, not just in the question of immigration, but generally. So we need to just push back on this uh, presupposition and look at how people are different and then react uh, accordingly. I think, we, uh, yeah, I, I think we can make a distinction between treating people equally and treating people fairly. Uh, that those aren't those aren't necessarily the same thing. Absolutely, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So let me be a little more specific about this, if I might, Marcus. Uh, what 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 was the expectation on the gear, the, the sojourner, in terms of the the way they would become a part of the community of the people of Israel? 
I'm not absolutely sure whether the term expectation is really right because well, I'm open to you sharpening my question <laughs> if necessary. Um, <laughs> because a sojourner um, isn't administered by a state bureaucrat and the bureaucrat will tell him these are our expectations. Rather, the sojourner would join an Israelite extended family. Um, so you see here, this, this changes the whole perspective. So now it's not the expectations, but it's what is natural to happen in this kind of circumstance. So he joins a family and then he will live with the family. And the family will naturally teach him what it means to live as a member of the Israelite uh, people. And then they will, yes, then there is an expectation, but it's more than an expectation. It really is a requirement uh, that he observes some of the religious regulations like not working on a Shabbat and uh, things like these. Uh, but he still has some liberty in how he wants to participate fully in the religious area. All the rest, he is just supposed, and there is no other way for him practically, to follow the generally applicable rules. Okay. So that, so that, that is the. I mean, that's a general. It, it's. It, it would not be. It would not be unusual, for. An immigrant, say from, you know, from Phoenicia or some other part of the Middle East, to be, you know, somewhat fully, maybe not fully, but somewhat integrated into Israelite society, culture, and even religion. Yes. So from the very beginning, Israel was not an ethnically, hermetically. Uh, divided or separated group from the very beginning. That's Exodus 12, when the, the emerging people of Israel leaves uh, Egypt. There are other people with them. So it was always possible to join Israel coming from outside. Uh, think also of the book of Joshua, where hmm. when the, the conquest begins, the very first episode is Rahab and her family. These are not Israelites, but they are allowed to join the people of Israel and then the Gibeonites. So that's, and these are the longest stories in Joshua. So that's very important. Now, you also made the point that there's, there, in ancient Israel, there was no central government that regulated immigration. It was done more on a, an extended family or in individual basis. So that would seem to put some limits on how we could d d directly transfer some of the Old Testament law to a central government today, right? Yes. So that shows the limits um, of the transferability, but it also gives us an incentive to think how we could perhaps change the system to some degree more into the direction of dealing with these things on a more personal level. Mm. And I do see that this is happening here, for example, when churches are used, so to speak, by the state as entities that will help integrate people and then just take it down to the even more personal level of a family. So if someone coming from outside lives 
under your roof, integration will be so much more quick and easy and natural than uh, in a situation where these immigrants live in an asylum center among themselves and then move into some ghettos where there are people from their home country. That doesn't work. What contribution do the creation accounts and patriarchal narratives in Genesis make to the discussion about migration? Uh, in my view, huge contributions, mm. and they are normally uh, completely overlooked. With one exception that I already mentioned, that everyone is created in the image of God, that is all over the place in, in the discussion among um scholars and in churches, but uh, creation accounts are much more rich than just this specific point. So the the other side of the same coin is that we have, when we talk about immigration, also to take uh, into account that people who already live in a place, so those who are the recipients, also are created in the image of God. So they need to be taken seriously as well. That's one point. The other point is that uh, we see that man in the original plan is not meant to migrate except for the process of filling the earth. Um, migration as a way of life comes in only in Genesis 4 as a punishment. So in Genesis 2, in the ideal situation, man is set in a, a garden to work it and not to move around. And to, to work it and to stay there. Yes. And then his descendants will gradually move out and fill the earth. But you see that's something different from the, the propagation of migration as an ideal. No, the ideal from a creational point of view is to stay. And we see it in the history of Israel. Israel, yes, is a at the beginning has to migrate away from this oppressive society in Egypt, but not to be permanent migrants, but just to move to the place that is um, promised to them and then to stay there. And again, migration happens, but like in Genesis 4, as a punishment. So the, the real goal, the real ideal is you're, not you're migration. You're referring there to the, to the exile. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah, so they had what? You know, four, four, five hundred years settled living in the land. Yes, and then they and then they came back. Yes, after exile yes. as well. Yes, oh. uh, and always with the goal to stay. Okay, and there is a there's a deeper reason also from a creational point of view. Um, migration is always disruptive. Now, everyone who has been a migrant migrant knows this. Um, and disruption is not something that uh, is an ideal. It may be necessary as a step on the way, but it's not the purpose of uh, that God has with our lives. Um, Marcus, let me go from the creation account to the, the early life of Jesus. I know in a lot of the literature on immigration, uh, the fact that Jesus spent his first couple of years on the move uh, is often taken as a, as a theologically significant point. What, it, what, in your view, is the significance of those early years of, of Jesus' life uh, as, a, as a migrant uh, 
uh, to the whole to the entire discussion of immigration. It is in in fact very important theologically. So the, the move uh, to G, of Jesus to Egypt and back means that Jesus in Jesus we see the life of the people of Israel reflected. We see the life of Moses reflected. So he is the new Moses. He is the new Israel. Uh, so these are deep theological points. But these are points that are far removed from the question of shall we open the border for this or that group of immigrants? That's on a completely different level. Obviously, in terms of number, we have a single family here that is persecuted and escapes persecution. And then one things are better move back. So we cannot use this episode as a guiding principle to say, well, generally, we need to have open borders. It's on a different level. And if it's used to, for the, the view we need to open our borders, well, we need to see that Jesus didn't just move to Egypt, but he actually moved back. Hmm. And this is the part that is never then taken up. What about the commandment to love your neighbor? What contribution does this make to the immigration di discussion? And what do the demands of justice involve for how immigrants are treated? Now you are opening really <laughs> uh -oh. such, a, <laughs> such a central and um, infinite uh, box here. Um, there, there are many layers here that are important and much more difficult than we normally think. Hmm. Um, so love your neighbor in the Old Testament is love your fellow Israelite. And the foundation is we are all members of the same covenant community. And there is no single word in the Old Testament love in a universal, on a universal scale. It's hmm. not there. Now, interestingly, though, you have also love the sojourner. But you see love the sojourner and not love the nochi, the foreigner. That's not there. So it's only the sojourner. And that is because the sojourner is part of the community of Israel. Now, um, then there are other very interesting observations. We see that the love for the sojourner, so the person who is normally somehow identified with modern immigrants, um, is defined very precisely in Deuteronomy 10 as giving him bread and clothing. So it's like the minimal survival things that he gets. And that's it. So not more. That's one very interesting um, observation. The other one is that when it comes to people outside, instead of love, the Old Testament talks about giving loans. So for the, all those people who may fare worse than the Israelites, the solution proposed is not lovingly opening the borders and let them all come but sending them loans, that's Deuteronomy 15. So these are huge, uh, hugely important distinctions that the Old Testament makes. Now, moving to the New Testament, um, it's, it's somehow different. The love command in the Gospels is just a 
quote of the Old Testament. And it's probably still just for the people of the covenant. And then you have some passages in Paul where it looks as if now love is just for everybody, but that's actually a matter of exegetical discussion. That's not clear. What is clear in the New Testament is that there is also a layering. So the primary responsibility, that's, for example, explicitly said in Galatians 6, the primary responsibility is for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And then uh, we have Matthew 25, a, a passage that is quoted very often in these contexts where we read about, among other things, a criterion from, to distinguish between sheep and goats in the last judgment is how they dealt with foreigners. Now, the passage actually specifies these foreigners are from among the least of my brothers. So again, it's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ and not beyond. Uh, and that is something that we just need to take seriously. Now, obviously, reading again the Bible as a canonical whole, it doesn't give us any pretext to say, okay, that's it, and we just despise and forget everyone else. But the Bible is surprisingly restrictive in the use of the term love. Now, there are other, as you already hinted it, there are other terms like justice and compassion that are much more easily, um, can much more easily be applied to just everybody. But everybody always in the Bible means there is a layer in responsibility. So the primary layer is those who are close to us. And that's the primary responsibility. And justice here means to not oppress anyone, not maltreat them, not abuse them. But you see, that's not the same as saying you have to give them the same rights and they are basically on the same level. That isn't found. Let me cl clarify one thing, though, when... When Jesus talks about the command to love your neighbor, he does use the Samaritan as the as the example of sort of broadening their concept of who constitutes your neighbor. It's again very difficult and uh, and a long exegetical discussion. Um, now the Samaritans are still, to some degree, part of the people of the covenant. To some degree. Hmm. Um, now it's the despised part. And then we see uh, there's another interesting twist here. Uh, the Samaritan is not the one who gets the help, but he is the one who, who gives, gives the, the help. help. All of this is very important, but it, you are right. It does, you know, it does kind of make things more fuzzy than they were in the Old Testament. And there is a very clear distinction, which is that brotherly love is no longer restricted to an ethnic community. Mm -hmm. That is a huge step, very explicit in the New Testament. So the new people of God consists of people of all backgrounds, and they can be mixed together just like that. However, here is another um, 
caveat, and that leads us back to the question of creation. We read in Genesis 10 that um, God separates peoples, nations. And these nations are marked by the territory, the language, and by a kinship relationship. That's the three explicit elements that are mentioned in Genesis 10. And this needs to be taken seriously as well. So there is something natural to having a kinship-based community that is the primary layer of responsibility. Even in the New Testament, this is not um, pushed aside or overcome. Um, it just loses its weight in terms of our relationship to God. But naturally, creationally, we are still dependent on kinship relations. As again, all migrants will tell you. Yeah, which is which why I think one, one of the reasons that the the New Testament describes the the church as a as a kinship relationship, mm -hmm. which I think is to be which if if we practice that we would take our church communities a lot more seriously than we do right today. Marcus, one more question: uh, this in in terms of the the overall immigration discussion, what what are you encouraged about uh, as you as you think about this conversation going forward? Frankly, <laughs> I'm not too encouraged about much at this point. Okay, um, well, maybe I'll change yes. the question then. What are, what are the what are what's the the one thing that concerns you the most about this discussion? Um, I just read uh, the statements on immigration issues um, that the major American denominations published in the recent couple of years. And what I see there is, unfortunately, what we mentioned at the beginning, the cherry-picking and decontextualizing and easy transfer. Um, that's worrying um, because that's the, that's the published position of the leadership of almost all the major denominations. Now, I, I am encouraged when I look at at the people in the congregation who are just ordinary churchgoers, they still realize that it's not like that. They still keep their common sense and they are still aware of the problems that mass immigration can cause. Now, in terms of worries, I'm more worried looking at Europe than I am looking at the US. And I'm worried at uh, the situation in Europe because there it's really just on the brink of an irreversible, deep, dramatic change of culture. So these European cultures and peoples, you know, as we just saw in the sense of kinship groups, they are in the process of, of not disappearing, but becoming minorities. And that means that all these century, millennia old cultures are under threat to, to disappear. That's, that's heartbreaking to watch. Well, especially that you are, you know, are, you are a European by upbringing. 
Yes, uh, it should not, however, be just for Europeans. But, um, you know, looking at history, Europe has been a channel of so much blessing by spreading the Bible uh, to many places of the world and by spreading concepts like equality before the law and and many other things um, which are normally now because of the cultural war we are finding ourselves in just overlooked and the only thing that is given weight are the negative sides that absolutely do exist but um, so we also need to retrieve and underline the positive sides now, this is important also for the discussion uh, in the U.S. because here also the European part of the U.S. heritage is now criticized um, and, and to some degree understandably, but we shouldn't paint black and white, but, but keep mm -hmm. a memory of what is good. Now, here in the U.S., the situation is absolutely different um, and less threatening because here the challenge is that it's becoming more diverse. Um, but I wouldn't see a replacement uh, as it is now taking place in, in Europe. However, we should not underestimate the challenge as far as I can tell as a non-American, we shouldn't underestimate the challenge that this poses to the U.S. as well, because at the point where the traditional ethnic cultural homogeneity is dissolved, the question arises, what holds us together? Yeah, and, what, and what would replace that? Yes. So, wow, There's, there is so much to talk about here. I wish we had another hour to do this. I think, Sean, we'll have to have a follow-up on Let's this. Let's do it. Because there's a, and we've just, uh, I, I, it's hard to, hard to envision, but we've just really scratched the surface of what's in this terrific book. Mm. And I want to recommend this to our listeners, The Bible and Immigration by Dr. Marcus Zender. Uh, it's a, just a terrific work. Uh, and there's just a lot of, lot of good food for thought. Um, and I'm sure the I'm sure it will cause some uh, some it'll, it will provoke some interesting responses uh, across the political spectrum, which which uh, I I think you're expecting. Yes, and I'm we should sure not about that. Be surprised with that. So, mm -hmm. Marcus, thank you so much for coming on with us. I suspect there's a follow up discussion in the future here on this, uh, but so appreciate your your work on this. It is it is as comprehensive a, a work on the Bible and immigration that I've seen uh, out there in print. So very grateful for your time, for your expertise, uh, and for coming on with us today. Thank you very much. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University offering programs in Southern California and online, including our new fully online bachelor's degree in Bible theology and apologetics. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. To enjoy today's conversation with our guest, Dr. Marcus Zender, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.